Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen, here to navigate the high seas of global politics like we do every other week. As the world looks more and more threatening and conflict and extremism are rampant, we're going to focus on a region from which there is also good news. And of course, some complexities. Why not? Southeast Asia. Today, we'll discuss the politics and economics of ASEAN in the context of its relations with China and the West, as well as the remarkable transformation in the past couple of decades. Will there be a realignment of the ASEAN nation's ideological and trade clashes between the U.S. and China? Will ASEAN be forced to pick a side after decades of neutrality? Which side would they pick? So, Muni, Southeast Asia is a region of 650 million people, most of them quite young, and made up of 10 different countries that could not be more different in every possible way. There's very few linguistic connections. There's very few economic connections. And when I say economic connections is that they're so different from Malaysia to Burma, from the Philippines to Thailand. They have extraordinary difference in religion and culture and history and politics. And moving beyond that diversity, however, they created ASEAN, a regional community committed to democracy, human rights, and good practices. And to a large extent, They've done some pretty good jobs, and now there's a huge problem in Myanmar, which we'll talk about in a second. And since the Asian financial crisis in the mid-90s, ASEAN countries' economic growth and social development has been impressive. Today, after COVID-caused world economic slowdown, this block now faces rapidly changing global dynamics and multiple multiple tensions, new COVID scares, retreats of democracy, economic uncertainty, tensions between the U.S. and China, all of which can affect their political and economic future. But wait, Peter, before we continue with geopolitics, there's so much to say, but Thea's take, we'll talk about Southeast Asia's enormous youth population, their political leadership, where they stand, and how they will shape the future of the region. I'm Taya Ivanovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. And there's lots to look at here. More than half of the population of Southeast Asia is under 30, and technology shapes the way youth in the region lives and works, and technology will also shape their future. In some ways, these young people will inherit a better world than their parents knew with higher income potential, increased access to education, and vast technological possibilities. But they'll also face serious issues, such as the problem of climate change and challenges to openness and human rights. And Southeast Asia has been very attractive for innovation, such as digital payment innovation, and is seeing a lot of startups come up in these digital payment, e-commerce, and cryptocurrencies. And the rise of consumer fintech is expected also to accelerate even further as it takes the biggest slice of the pie in venture capital transaction in Southeast Asia, which are honestly mind-bogglingly large. It already hit a record of $10 billion in the first half of last year alone, surpassing 2020's already high $8.2 billion. So there's a lot of exciting innovation happening in Southeast Asia, and I really want to ask our guests about how youth plays a huge role in that. It's driving a lot of that innovation. But the question remains for me, how will the politics of ASEAN shape its direction? Tweet at Altamar Podcast and let me know what you think. 
Thanks, Taya. I think it's worth looking at the region's recent history. In, in the past decades, China has invested so heavily in Southeast Asia through its Belt and Road Initiative, multiplying its trade and investments in regions and strengthening its ties. The result has been widespread economic growth, greater trade, investment flows, and growth in education and technology. Military and economic relations are strong, and even U.S. allies like the Philippines and Thailand have recently taken advantage of China's keen interests. Yeah, Peter, that's true. But the U.S. has fallen short in engaging with ASEAN from Washington's very mild response to the coup in Myanmar and the chronic absence of diplomats in key capitals. They still haven't appointed most of them. To weak trade and investment flows, the U.S. has yielded much geopolitical space to China. And recently they're worried. And so the U.S. is trying to get it act together. U.S., Japan and Australia created a counterforce to China, building an agenda around climate change issues, new investments and infrastructure development, issues of security and regional diplomacy. It's not clear how much of these have been uh, actually put into operation. And they're going slowly after many years of neglect. And the thing is, Muni, that this region is caught like between these two giants, China and the US. And you see that in these, like even the trade packs, you've got these two trade blocks, the RCEP with China, but excludes the US and then the CPTPP, which includes the US, but not China. And, and the US, even with that, the US just hasn't developed a robust economic agenda. And it's not been able to get the new block really off the ground in any in any way that's substantial. And, you know, despite whatever seductions the Biden administration wants to implement, China still seems to have the stronger hand, though it's changing. You know, what we have seen is we've managed to move some of the pendulum towards the West is Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And we, I would certainly want to ask that of our guest. Is Southeast Asia realigning because of the West condemnation of Putin? I mean, we certainly have seen a number of the countries voting at the United Nations with the West and against Russia. So that's certainly one of the things that we're going to want to see. There's also important elections that are going to show us which direction the region is going to take in the Philippines. We are going to see elections very soon upcoming and related to the U.S. relations. We've had a president in the Philippines until today that has talked about, quote unquote, a separation with the United States. And Timor-Leste's election is underway now in a country that treasures its new democracy. So we're going to see a lot of moving, toing, and froing from the region as the great blocks begin to realign the Russia-Ukraine question just keeps festering and elections are happening in the region now. So we have a lot to talk about with our wonderful guest and to discuss the past, present and future of Southeast Asia and its relationship with the world. We welcome today's guest, Niharika Mandana. Niharika is the Wall Street Journal's bureau chief for Southeast Asia based in Singapore and leads a team of correspondents covering politics, economics, business and technology trends across the region. Previously, she was a correspondent in Hong Kong, writing about a range of issues, including sanctions against North Korea, the Rohingya crisis and disputes in the South China see. Harika, welcome to Altamar. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So we've been talking about Southeast Asia and how it grew and became a global example of economic progress, transformation, and basically a good news story in the past decades. How did this happen? 
Yeah, so I want to start by saying that we're talking about Southeast Asia at the regional level, but by no stretch of the imagination is Southeast Asia a monolithic or homogenous region, right? So you have, if you think about the diversity in the region, it's incredible. Linguistic diversity, cultural diversity, diversity of political systems, economic systems, disparity in terms of economic development. And this goes to your point of economic transformation. So just to illustrate that point very quickly, Singapore, which is in Southeast Asia, has a GDP per capita that is 40 times the GDP per capita of Myanmar, which is also a country in Southeast Asia. So obviously, the economic progress of the region hasn't been uniform. There are countries like Cambodia, like Laos, like Myanmar, which continue to be poor, which continue to be agrarian in many ways. But I will answer your question about the factors that have driven growth in large parts of the region. And the one that I want to focus on is export-led manufacturing, which has been a very key kind of factor in Southeast Asia's progress, particularly in countries like Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore. Export-led growth in manufacturing uh, facilitated the movement of people from farms to factories, from rural areas to urban areas, and really made these countries important nodes in global production systems. So if you think of Thailand and the automotive industry, where Thailand's very important node in the global automotive industry, there's Malaysia and the semiconductor industry. There's more recently Vietnam and electronics, right? So these are really important steps or clusters that were formed in various Southeast Asian nations. So I think that's an important factor to highlight. There is an asterisk so, and I'm quickly going to point out kind of the limitations of this growth story. A lot of countries are in danger of being stuck in what some economists call the middle income trap. So they've done really well in this kind of early industrialization process, but converting that into becoming high income countries or continuing down that road is a challenge. If you think of Thailand, which grew rapidly in the 70s, 80s and 90s, you know, 7% plus kind of growth rates, that's come down sharply at the moment. And there really is a danger of Thailand being stuck in this kind of middle income trap without sufficient investments in things like productivity, education, etc. So while there has been economic transformation, millions of people have been pulled out of poverty and there are success stories, we're also seeing kind of the limits of that process. So I'm Latin American, I'm Colombian. And in, in Latin America, we always look at Southeast Asia as an example, as a model of this export-led growth and how it has taken so many people out of poverty. What are some of the lessons? You mentioned education. You mentioned, you know, how it, there's a, a middle income trap. We, we only wish that many countries in Latin America were stuck even there. What are some of the lessons that countries that did actually develop, apply, that could be transferred to other regions? You know, it's an interesting question and kind of a complicated one, because I think the export-led model is coming under quite a bit of stress in the sense that the global context and the global picture seems to be changing pretty quickly. So it's unclear that that path that a lot of Asian countries took in the last half century, starting with, you know, Japan, Korea, the Asian Tigers, China, most recently, and Southeast Asian countries, this kind of export-led growth of manufactured goods, that that is 
still open to countries that are late industrializers that want to now embark on this process. And the reason is that a number of things have changed. Wages are increasing everywhere quite rapidly. Countries are becoming old before they get rich. You're seeing already premature deindustrialization in a number of countries where manufacturing as a share of GDP is peaking at much lower levels of development than what you saw with kind of you know Western industrialization or Asian industrialization in the last half century including Southeast Asian industrialization of, of the countries that we've spoken about. So there really is, this model is, is coming under stress. Also, the trade picture has changed quite a bit. So countries in Southeast Asia took advantage of a rapidly globalizing world that embraced free trade in, in kind of an open way. Obviously, we know that system has come under stress. To be sure, it hasn't, you know, the, the kind of doomsday scenario of deglobalization, decoupling, all of those things that we were talking about, starting from President Trump's kind of tenure going on through the pandemic, haven't played out quite in that way. But I don't think anyone can argue that, you know, that free trade environment has come under stress and doesn't have the same level of uncritical and wide-ranging support. So for all these reasons, I feel like the model that a lot of Southeast Asian countries followed, at least in the initial industrialization process, may not be available. And it may be the case that a lot of countries that are following have to kind of reinvent the wheel in some ways, try to figure out a new model for development and growth. You mentioned the diversity in the region and the such vast differences in income and in culture, et cetera. But yet, Southeast Asia managed to create ASEAN, a block where many have failed. What was the secret to success of creating such a, an organization in, in the middle of so much diversity? So ASEAN has been around for many decades, founded in 1967 with five members, now consists of 10 members. So it has endured over time. Every year, there are a series of meetings and discussions that take place. I'll, I'll start with talking about the successes of ASEAN. And then uh, I don't want this to become a pattern in my answers, but there will be another asterisk or a but at the end of that. The, uh, on the successes, uh, you know, economic integration has been one of the kind of successful achievements of ASEAN. So within ASEAN, there's a free trade environment with limitations. But, in you know, from 1992 onwards, there's been an intra-ASEAN FTA. And then a lot of kind of free trade agreements with other big powers in the region, including China, Korea, India, and other countries. So that's facilitated and promoted this kind of manufacturing ecosystem that Southeast Asian countries have developed or sought to develop also provided a forum for dialogue. You know, uh, ASEAN Regional Forum, the East Asia Summit, these are important opportunities for global leaders to come together, get some face time to talk about issues at the highest levels and try to achieve breakthroughs with some of the most kind of difficult and prickly questions of which there are many, of course. So I think those are important achievements of ASEAN and the fact, as you say, that it's endured for so many decades, despite the diversity, disparity, uh, and kind of sometimes different interests within the bloc, right? But th there have been 
a number of issues, important ones, both internal and external, that ASEAN has struggled to navigate and has not been able to resolve or navigate successfully. One is, you know, with the South China Sea, a number of Southeast Asian countries have overlapping claims over contested features with China. And China has, over the last decade and a half, significantly expanded its presence through the building of artificial islands, through the militarization of those islands, through the deployment of its navy, coast guard, and maritime militia and other forces. And Southeast Asia, or ASEAN, as a unit, has not been able to build consensus around what to do about that or how to respond. And we can talk more about that later if that's of interest. But it's been one of the most difficult issues because countries have different interests on this particular topic. And on the issue of more recently, the Myanmar coup, which was kind of a big a political earthquake for the unit, for the bloc, and the bloc has struggled to respond to it in any kind of effective way. I wanted to say I, that I get to steer the conversation away from economics to politics. I had written down the word earthquake and you used that, um, so you're way ahead of me. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry to steal I think it's great. There seems to be two, two, two big geostrategic earthquakes are affecting, perhaps I'm simplifying, one is the increased China-US tensions and the other one is Myanmar. So let me ask you a couple of questions about those and let's start with Myanmar. Is what's happening in Myanmar, the coup and the, the Rohingyas, that is that fraying consensus in ASEAN? So the fracturing or the fraying has happened before with the South China Sea. And I suspect you're going to ask me about this as a follow-up question, but I want to quickly say that, you know, even in 2012, when ASEAN foreign ministers met to talk about the South China Sea and other issues, they could not agree on a joint statement or a joint communique. Uh, and no document was released after that meeting for the reason that some countries within ASEAN wanted to mention South China Sea disputes. And Cambodia, which is a close partner of China or has become a close partner of China's, uh, did not want that. And ASEAN is an institution or a bloc that is based on consensus. Everyone must agree. And therefore, there was no joint statement to communicate. So the fracturing goes back kind of before the Myanmar coup. But with Myanmar, it's been a very challenging situation for ASEAN because, you know, the five-point consensus, the five-point plan that ASEAN developed as kind of a way forward after the Myanmar coup, Myanmar basically threw it out. You know, the junta has shown absolutely no political will to implement the uh, five-point plan. The envoy that ASEAN appointed to go to the region to talk to various stakeholders didn't have access to Aung San Suu Kyi. And so that whole thing fell apart. So there have been a lot of questions about, you know, the issue of ASEAN centrality, uh, the issue of ASEAN being able to handle internal conflicts, of being able to forge a path. All of that has come into question with, with the Myanmar coup, where the response has been 
weak and ineffective, except, you know, the, the one step that they did take was last year to disinvite uh, the junta leader, the coup, the coup planner, uh, General Minon Lang, was not invited to a major meeting of the summit. And that was an important diplomatic snub, but without any real implications for shaping things on the ground in Myanmar, changing things for people that are at the receiving end of the junta's violence, for instance. You began talking about the South China Seas. I mean, it seems like there's a there's a bit of a there's a tension in that trade and investment with China has grown substantially over the last couple of decades, and yet there are these military, geo border, maritime border issues that not only keep cropping up but seem to be growing worse at the same time. How, how does how does Southeast Asia manage one with the other and its relations with, with China? It's a challenge. Both of those things are happening at the same time. So there has been a great degree of economic integration, as you say, between China and Southeast Asia, a rapid growth in trade. You know, th- this is a country, China is a massive economy that is geographically proximate to Southeast Asia and Southeast Asia wants to plug into that economic boom and that economic story. Southeast Asia wants to benefit from that, right? But also there are very difficult issues to navigate with China. There's the South South China Sea issue where uh, countries like the Philippines and like Vietnam are finding that their oil and gas exploration projects or their fishing grounds and fishing rights are coming under stress from China's activities in the South China Sea. As I said, the island building and militarization has been a big cause for concern. Uh, There are other issues too. Uh, I mean, with the Mekong, for instance, the building of uh, dams on the upper reaches of the Mekong by China have changed the way of life for many people within the lower stretches of the Mekong in Vietnam, in uh, Cambodia, in Thailand. There are misgivings about things like debt trap diplomacy with Chinese money coming in for infrastructure projects after the infamous case of the Sri Lankan port uh, as part of One Belt, One Road. So there are certainly a lot of kind of uh, stresses in the relationship with China between Southeast Asia and China, but also a lot to be gained from economic cooperation. And and the big challenge for Southeast Asian nations now and going forward, they've been doing it already for a few years, but also going forward is going to intensify is how to balance those two sets of interests. And then there's the U.S., which has fallen short in its outreach to Southeast Asia economically, politically throughout the last decades. And now in the context of the tensions between the U.S. and China, it seems like the U.S. government is trying to reach out to try to kind of create some geopolitical balance with Southeast Asia. What do you think about that kind of new development? Yeah, I mean, the U.S., it's a, it's a difficult region for the U.S. to navigate because there are very few clear wins for the U.S. in this region. You're not, never going to walk away feeling, okay, we got that, you know. So it, it, so it is a complicated uh, region for the U.S. to navigate. There, there were missed opportunities over many years. Last year, after the Biden administration came to power for six months, there was very little outreach because obviously the Biden administration has 
a lot of different priorities and this kind of just didn't figure. But in the second half of the year, there was a flurry of diplomatic activity. You know, the uh, defense secretary, secretary of state, the vice president, uh, you had a number of high level visits to the region, which was appreciated in the region because FaceTime does matter. The fact that you show up sends that message that, okay, you are invested and this region matters. The one piece that's missing, as you said, I mean, there's been deficiencies in the United States approach and the U.S. may not be the best at economic statecraft, it has to be said. So the one piece that Southeast Asian countries are still waiting for is the economic piece. So President Trump pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, the TPP, which was this big kind of trade pact that the U.S. had led negotiations on that was going to change the picture for trade in the region. The U.S. pulled out and and since then there have been other developments that involve China for instance, RCEP. Uh, I won't bore you with uh, more acronyms, but um, RCEP is another kind of trade pact that includes China and excludes the United States. And so Southeast Asian nations are waiting to figure out what the U.S. has to offer in terms of economic growth opportunities and opportunities for economic collaboration, either on infrastructure, on investment, even on climate, which is an area of convergence. And that peace remains the same. So Niharika, I want to ask you about youth. I mean, uh, you know, the region is known to have sort of the largest majority of youth um, in the world, really, and many of them are politically active. My colleagues will ask you about the upcoming elections, but can you talk to us about how you see youth shaping the future for the region? Yes. So there's two, I guess there's two important ways uh, that we can talk about. One is on the digital front. So you're seeing this kind of explosion of digital innovation, growth of digital companies, digital payments, e-commerce. You know, this is a region that spends a lot of time on the internet and pandemic has obviously played an important role in kind of accelerating that trend of digitization. So you're really seeing Southeast Asia and Southeast Asian companies, Southeast Asian entrepreneurial spirit uh, just coming to life uh, on the digital front. So that's on one side. On the political side, too, you're seeing a new generation kind of grow frustrated with political elites in their countries. So protests in Thailand, for instance, even the coup resistance in Myanmar, which is being led by a new generation of uh, young people in the country uh, who really want to break the shackles of these old elites holding on to power the monarchies, the juntas, the military-linked interest groups, the crony capitalists. They want, this is a globalized youth with access to the internet that wants a different future for itself. They're up against really powerful forces, really entrenched forces. So whether or not they succeed is yet to be determined, but certainly they're reshaping uh, how politics is evolving in some of these countries. Again, I love it how you are leading always me to the next question, which is fantastic. So let's talk about the elections and how that in particular we have elections in the Philippines and in Timor-Leste, but also these protests that keep keep popping up and don't seem to ever quite be placated or go away. What's the political future for the region? And I know for a region as diverse, you can't, there's no one, but do you see a trend? With Thailand, you mentioned the protests in Thailand. For two years now, on and off, they have bubbled up. 
And there's been a really important breakthrough and a really important shift that is emblematic of where the mood is with young voters and young people, at least in parts of Southeast Asia. I'm loath to generalize because the leading candidate in the Philippines is Marcos Jr., uh, the son of the former dictator of the country, right? So this isn't a uniform picture. But in Thailand, you know, the questioning of the monarchy, which was at the center of these protests, asking the monarchy in Thailand, for those who don't know, it's a sacred institution, questioning the monarchy, not only will it send you to jail, it's also frowned upon by society at large. So to have a new generation question the monarchy and say, should they have the kind of political power and privileges? Where are they spending their money? What are they doing abroad in for instance, the monarch spends many months in Germany every year. What are they doing there? These questions for very many decades could not even be spoken out aloud in you know, closed quarters, let alone in the public square. So the fact that these things have happened in the last two years are um, extremely significant and show us kind of a new direction for at least parts of Southeast Asia. But as I said, you know, the forces they're up against are really powerful. So in in Thailand, you know, the the government has used the less majest law to punish protesters, put protest young protesters in jail. Um, and it's it, to some extent has worked in kind of slowing down the momentum with key actors kind of either behind bars or, you know, otherwise incapacitated. You've been wonderful, and I'm more than run out of time, but but I have one last quick question. Is is the Russia-Ukraine war something that is somehow shifting balances, or is it something that just seems very far away? It's it's very far away in that the response has been fairly muted. The, the ASEAN statement didn't even mention Russia by name. So it didn't even want to call out Russia or Putin by name. Although at the General Assembly, uh, you know, eight out of 10 ASEAN countries voted in favor of the resolution. But some, you know, Singapore has joined sanctions and imposed sanctions, but no other country has. In, in terms of the effect, there are some proximate kind of impacts of the war, you know, commodities, the flow of commodities is an important issue. This is going to hurt uh, people in Southeast Asia. But in terms of the political articulation or the political response, it's been it's been muted. Nikharika Mandana from The Wall Street Journal in Singapore. Thank you so much for joining us on Altomar. Thank you for having me. Peter, Thea, there's so much to digest after this very thorough interview, but there's one thing that stuck in my head is this whole idea of kind of a proxy war between China and the U.S. that could play out in Southeast Asia and, and specifically in the comments that our guests made about how the U.S., she didn't say it this way, but that's kind of the, the gist, needs to put their money where their mouth is and all this kind of political pandering and outreach needs to be accompanied by investment and in infrastructure, trade, and, and some more kind of economic outreach. So I, I just wonder as the world is, is, is so much in disarray, whether the U.S. has the muscle right now, the economic muscle, to engage in that way, in the way that is needed in order to make some type of um, waves over there. It's funny. And what stuck with me in this interview is the 
just this push by disaffected youth for change and the sense of even the ties are now even questioning the legitimacy of the royal family and just a sense of pushing and pushing against entrenched interests in crony capitalism. I mean, you see this now all over the world. We, we see this in whether it's in Latin America and indeed in, in Colombia, which is the reason why what one of the candidates from the left is so far, so far ahead. But you just see this sense of young people having uh, more than enough of the way elites have handled it until now. Now, I guess I'm supposed to sort of hand it over to the young person on the podcast, Taya, to like... Um, you want to say young guest. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think absolutely that's what stuck with me, right? Is this um, the sense that everywhere youth is disillusioned, it's upset, it's trying to fight against crony capitalists and, you know, all, all corruption and all the things that, you know, that, that we talked about with Naharika. I mean, the question for me is clearly this is in the next election cycle, nothing seems to be going to change, right? Because I think youth is upset, but youth will be upset for, you know, several more years before something starts to change. And, you know, that's really upsetting. So I think, you know, the direction is very unclear of, of where the, where this will go um, with such a large disillusioned youth. Um, so with that, I guess I'm I'm going to be closing today. Um, you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us as well. And also sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter where you get some analysis about world events that are not in the headlines. See you next time. And thank you for listening. <laughs>